Hello and welcome to this podcast brought by you by Argus Media, a leading independent provider of energy and commodity pricing information. Um, a carbon offset is a unit that equals to one metric ton of CO2 uh, that it has been either saved or removed from the atmosphere. It sounds pretty simple, but accounting that carbon theft Uh, carbon offset and pro proving its sustainability is still often unclear. We will talk about this in this podcast and we will touch as well in the role played by the carbon offsetting and reduction scheme for international aviation, Corsia, and the potential developments coming from the COP26, which is taking place in Glasgow by the end of this year. My name is Alfonso Barrocal, European Business Development Manager for all products at Argus Media. And to shed some light on this matter, we have with us here today my colleague Eleanor Green, who is the Argus Senior Editor in Electricity and Emission. Good, good afternoon, Eleanor. How are you? Alfonso, yeah, I'm well, thank you. Good. Um, Eleanor, can we uh, start the podcast defining what are the key differenti differentiators between voluntary carbon offsets and a regulated market uh, like the uh, European ETS, for instance? Sure. So obviously a market like the EU ETS is um, a, a regulated market governed by uh, laws uh, passed by the European Parliament. Um, which sets out the mandatory requirements for certain sectors of the industry and the economy to buy emissions credits for each tonne of carbon that they emit. So that is a mandatory requirement. Uh, companies can choose to buy their emissions credits uh, at any point during usually a three to four year cycle. Um, and uh, then with each phase moves on, you need to have, have completed your buying for each phase. In, in a market like that, uh, while it is a market and the supply and demand sets the price, uh, a the government or the governing body has quite a lot of influence on regulating that supply and demand. So, for instance, they can increase demand for it by bringing a new sector of the economy into the EU ETS. They can also limit supply of them because they can uh, reduce um, the amount of credits in circulation. Uh, and we've seen that with the EU ETS in recent years, where they, they had a strategic reserve to, to reduce the amount of um, additional credits in circulation and, and support prices. It, for a voluntary market, there is no requirement for uh, a company to participate and there is no single governing body setting rules and regulations around this. There are multiple overlapping authorities and bodies and uh, NGOs and initiatives that Uh, try to help shape the market, but there is no actual overall governing body. Uh, so supply is um, produced through um, project developers who develop a project to uh, produce these carbon offsets. Um, and demand is, is largely voluntary. So it's companies and individuals who have chosen to uh, buy offsets to, um, to offset their, their personal or their, their corporate um, offsets. Uh, This is going to start to change a little bit. Um, we'll go into this in a bit more detail, but obviously some aviation companies are going to have to start buying some in, in uh, the coming years if they don't opt for using low uh, carbon sustainable fuels instead. And uh, some governments may start buying them for, to 
to help um, meet their own um, nationally determined um, contributions to, to UN climate goals. Um, and so in that case there, there would be more, um, more sort of mandatory demand created. But at the moment, it's very, very much a voluntary market um, with no single set of governing rules um, around either the supply or the demand for them. Okay, uh, thanks, Renor. And just uh, to to put us in, in context, uh, maybe a, a ballpark idea, what, what is currently the uh, price range of uh, uh, voluntary carbon offset and what is the, roughly speaking, the price uh, of, of an emission in the, under the, the ETS? And if we look at the uh, voluntary carbon offsets, what is what drives this, this price? Sure. Um, so the, the pricing of the voluntary carbon offsets varies hugely. Um, even though it's the same ton of carbon, the actual price paid in the market can vary um, from 50 cents to $24. Um, we've seen deals this year at. So uh, one of the reasons for that is uh, that there are lots of different sorts of projects producing carbon offsets. Some of them have a range of additional benefits often linked to sustainable development goals. Um, so, for instance, they could uh, um, be a project which, through the use of replacing cook stoves uh, with um, uh, something more efficient, um, children are able to attend school because they don't need to gather wood for, um, for um, using for cooking in the home. So you end up with, with a significant range in, in pricing. Um, some projects are more expensive because they are also more appealing. Um, sometimes we talk about the orangutan premium. So a, a project which, you know, is, is situated in a picturesque place, which has additional benefits for, you know, a, a acute animal um, protecting its habitat will often um, attract a premium price uh, because buyers like to see that and they like to be able to use that in their corporate sustainability reporting, their brochures and so on and so forth. So it's a strange market because actually some of the, the price differentials are very much around consumer preference. Um, rather than um, to do with anything around the underlying quantity. That said, uh, because this isn't a, a, a market which has a single oversight um, governing body, you get a range of verification bodies um, that help verify that a project is taking place and is following some kind of methodology for accounting for its carbon offsets. And the verification bodies that are used uh, can lead to a, a range in prices as well. Some verification bodies have more rigorous standards than others. Um, there's also some concern uh, over whether some types of carbon offset really do have additionality. So that means they are actually providing some additional benefit to the climate that wouldn't have taken place already. So renewable energy offsets are one of the main ones where we see um, quite low prices because uh, wind and solar costs have fallen so rapidly over the last decade that uh, wind and solar plants that are being built may well have been built without needing to sell offset credits as an additional form of income. And if those wind farms would have existed anyway, then the offsets that are generated from it um, have no additional benefit. There's no net benefit to the environment from doing so. But you're not you're not removing an additional ton of, of carbon. Uh, so that's one of the reasons why prices vary so hugely. Uh, just to put into context, uh, the current price for the EU ETS market is at a record high and it's around 62 euros. So uh, even the cheapest offsets are currently a lot cheaper than the EU ETS. Okay, that's um, that's clear. Thanks, um, Eleanor. Um, 
the uh, the market uh, the market may have heard of the Mark Carney Tax Force Initiative. Can you explain us briefly what it is and what is the uh, purpose of uh, the uh, this Mark Carney Task Force Initiative? Its aim? Yeah. So um, it's called the Task Force for Scaling Up the Voluntary Carbon Markets, and its aim uh, is to standardize a um, core carbon contract um, which would allow for um, greater liquidity in trading and the development of a, a financially traded derivatives market against it. Um, this is not how the market works uh, at the moment. As I've said, the price can vary hugely, even though it's the same ton of carbon, because you have all of these voluntary, uh, all this we say, these consumer preferences that, that help shape the different prices. Um, they hope to set a, uh, a sort of generic standard, um, which they then hope buyers will choose to adopt um, and by doing so drive liquidity in this standardised contract and, and allow uh, a, a large financial market to develop against it. Um, they are an initiative. This is a voluntary market. They have no power to make this happen. They have no power to enforce this. Um, they are an initiative that are hoping that this um, will encourage buyers to enter the market, but they cannot force buyers to enter the market, nor can they force anyone to, to participate in, in trading a more standardised contract. Um, they're also working on a number of issues behind the scenes uh, around meta um, registries to help um, be able to track what's happening in the verification bodies registries. Some issues around legal contracts and standardising some of the, the process of doing a deal, all of which at the moment is quite um, uh, non-standard and so it's quite inefficient each deal that you sign will will, will require um, a, a large range of back office work to be completed okay it sounds it sounds a little bit like um earlier stages um, of this uh, of this market um so let's say that that an airline uh, and when now we, we're going to focus mm -hmm. a little bit more on aviation sector and and Corsia, uh, let's say that, that an airline uh, is pursuing to save carbon emission and and they could indeed buy carbon offsets uh under what conditions Corsia will accept those carbon offsets credits and what is the timeline that Corsia has set uh, uh to airlines for compliance so uh so Corsia is the main scheme through which demand is expected to increase for but from aviation for these carbon offsets. So at the moment we're in the pilot phase of Corsia, which runs from 2021 to 2023. Um, so it's been as perhaps a slower start than anticipated because COVID has obviously reduced uh, aviation companies' businesses uh, and they've had other things on their mind right now. Uh, so, but we will then move into the first phase from 2024 to 26. And that applies to nation states that have volunteered to participate in the scheme, which is primarily the richer countries. And then the second phase begins in 2027 and runs to the end of 2035. And that is mandatory for all ICAO members, uh, barring those who have less than a 0.5% share of international aviation and some of the world's very poorest countries. Um, so at the end of each three year phase, participating airlines are going to be required to buy offsets uh, and they will need to buy offsets for the amount of emissions emitted above 2020 level for each of the previous three years. Now, in the early years of Corsia, the number of offsets that any individual airline will need to buy will actually depend on the entire industry's emissions growth since 2020, rather than any change in their own individual output. So this is the sectoral component 
of course, yeah. So that the requirement to offset emissions is going to be divided among aviation in proportion to the CO2 emissions of that company. So that means that larger airlines who already have a larger um, emissions output are going to initially offset a larger share of their emissions growth than they are directly responsible for. And this is to allow um, younger, smaller airlines, particularly in um, countries like China and India, where there has been less uh, of an aviation industry for a less long time, to catch up with the more mature markets. So those markets and those companies that have been able to uh, emit carbon for longer will be paying for offsets for a larger share of their emissions uh, initially than uh, countries where aviation is a relatively modern phenomenon. Uh, from 2030, this is going to transition to one that's actually based on each airline's individual rate of growth. Um, so uh, this will transition slowly. So for the first two years, 20% of the offset requirement is based on this individual approach, uh, with 80% still based on the sectoral approach. And this gradually increases up to 2035 when the individual approach is going to reach um, 70%. In terms of the type of offsets um, that they can buy, uh, they can buy any offsets that are part of the approved Corsia program. Um, so that does limit things slightly. Uh, there are six verification bodies that are approved under Corsia, which is the American Carbon Registry, Climate Action Reserve, the Verified Carbon Standard or BCS, Gold Standard, uh, the China Greenhouse Gas Emission Reduction Program and the CDM Clean Development Mechanism. Um, those are really the big six anyway. So that does cover, should we say, most of the market that uh, that already exists, but it doesn't cover every verification body. So there will be some uh, emissions credits in circulation that don't um, that don't apply towards Corsia and com uh, companies that are obliged to buy credits will need to make sure that they are valid under uh, under the Corsia requirements. All right. All right. Thanks, um, Eleanor, for this detail. Uh, answer um, definitely airlines uh, under pressure particularly uh, from 20 by 2030 but definitely already they they must be looking into this um, and finally um, uh, it's a little bit of more speculative uh, question uh, with the um, with the cop 26 taking place this November uh, what uh, developments do we expect if any, in regards to the uh, Article 6 of the Paris Agreement? Yeah, so Article 6 is actually a very contentious part of the Paris Agreement. It sounds very technical, um, but it's quite important um, for uh, the development of a carbon offset market. They have failed to strike agreement on the detail of this since 2015, when it was originally signed. The UK government, who is leading um, COP26 this year is, is making a real push to try and get agreement for it. So Article 6 essentially allows for three different sorts of mechanisms for voluntary cooperation towards nationally defined contributions, which is essentially the amount that a, a, a country, a nation state has agreed to reduce its emissions by. Um, and there are three different ways that they can um, they can do this. So any country that has uh, has beaten its pledge, so has surplus emissions credits to sell, can sell that overachievement to another country. Um, uh, there is also provision for a potentially a new international carbon market governed by a UN body for trade trading carbon credits. Or there is a non-market approach where um, countries sign individual bilateral agreements 
um, with um, other countries to uh, facilitate trade at a, and government level between them. So this is talking about governments, but why does that matter? Well, some of the rules uh, that need to be sorted out are around uh, making sure that there is no double counting of offsets uh, so that a country that is producing them, for example, through a forestry project, um, can't count them towards its uh, climate pledges as well as selling them to another country that then can count it towards its climate pledges. Um, so there are a lot of concern that um, uh, steps need to be um, put in place to make sure there isn't this double counting. So that's going to have some uh, bearing on how uh, carbon offsets are used outside of these nationally determined pledges. So how do we account for non-NDC uses like Corsia and also eventually for the, the International Maritime Organization as well? Um, the, the important thing that um, people are keen to avoid is making sure that you don't end up with the same tonne of carbon being counted towards multiple different um, emissions, pledges and goals, because, of course, that would suggest that we were then underachieving on uh, overall emissions targets goals. So uh, there has been a lot of meetings behind the scenes at the moment. Um, there were um, uh, sets of meetings in June uh, where um, at a non-ministerial level, so at a sort of technocratic level, where really the same um, issues that have come up before remained. Uh, so it's really moving to a ministerial level of diplomacy now, um, and they're working quite hard to try and get the main parties on board so that some decisions can be made for Article 6. If they fail to get much agreement, what we're going to be left with is bilateral agreements between countries. And some of these are, are being signed already. Switzerland and Sweden have both looked at signing bilateral agreements um, with other countries. Um, and so there could still be uh, trade between governments of carbon offsets taking place. But what it would really mean is that the, the market would be slower to develop and because it would be less efficient, you'd end up having all these individual bilateral agreements rather than some kind of globally accepted standard. Uh, so the knock on effect for that is that potentially um, the market overall just grows more slowly. Fewer projects get developed uh, as quickly and um, the sort of standardisation and liquidity in the market um, doesn't develop as quickly as it, it could otherwise have done. So it remains unclear, very unclear at the moment what will happen with the Article 6 discussions. And it will almost certainly go right to the end of COP26 um, before they uh, before they get an agreement. So it will probably be about 2 a.m. on the Saturday morning before before anything is, is defined, I think is probably the best guess we have for that. All right, so since we will have to wait um, till two in the morning that day uh, to know a little bit more about it. Uh, but thanks a lot, uh, Eleanor, for sharing your um, your knowledge in the uh, and your views in the in the in the matter. And thank you all for tuning in uh, to this podcast. And if uh, if you're interested in following the latest news on on uh, on carbon offset or, or prices about the jet fuel or, and soft market, please do not hesitate to uh, log on into the uh, Argus website. And in the meantime, please stay safe and see you next time. <laughs>